If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, where we're continuing on with the story of Jesus' birth. Last week we witnessed God's Word fulfilled as Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger. This week we again see God's plan moving forward as Jesus is presented in Jerusalem's temple. So Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that there is but one foundation for the church, and it's a foundation that will never be moved. It's the Lord Jesus Christ given to us in the Gospel, presented to us in the Scriptures, and we pray, God, that You would help us now to hear His Word and to believe His Gospel so that He would receive glory and so that His church would be built up in the faith and that we would be blessed, Father, in Him. Please keep me from error, God. Please give Your people discernment to hold fast to the truth. And we do pray, God, that You would do a good work among us today of helping us, Father, to grow in the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, our passage this morning continues the theme that began last week with the shepherds in Bethlehem. You'll recall from last Sunday that the, the lowly shepherds 
were the first people to receive the good news of Jesus' birth. And in response, the shepherds had the privilege of being the first witnesses to Christ. They were like early evangelists. It was an unlikely group for God to choose, but that's part of the glory of the Gospel. God uses ordinary, unlikely people to spread His Word. And so it was with the shepherds. They received the good news, they believed the good news, and then the shepherds witnessed to what they had heard. In today's passage, that theme of testimony, that theme of witness, continues. And just like the lowly shepherds, the testimony comes from some unexpected people. Luke introduces us in this passage to two total strangers, Simeon and Anna. They haven't appeared in the Gospel of Luke so far. They don't know Joseph and Mary's family before this encounter, and we never hear from either of them again. They are total strangers. And yet, Luke presents them as authoritative, faithful witnesses who give good testimony. Perhaps you heard it when we read, but Luke very clearly stresses the reliability, even the authority, of these witnesses. Look again in your Bible. You'll see three times in verses 25-27, to Luke emphasizes the Spirit's work in Simeon's life. The Spirit is upon him. The Spirit promises him he will see the Christ. The Spirit leads him to the temple on the very day that Jesus arrives. Three times, Simeon is connected with the Holy Spirit so that Luke's point is clear. This is a reliable, Spirit-led witness and we should listen to him. And then notice verse 36 where Anna is described as a prophetess. Again, the point has to do with the Spirit. Anna is a vessel for divine insight, for Spirit-led revelation of the truth. She doesn't speak as extensively as Simeon, but still the point remains. She is a reliable witness who gives truthful testimony to who Jesus is, and so we should listen to her. You see, Simeon and Anna may be strangers, but their role in this passage is clear and it's important. They are witnesses to Jesus' identity. They testify to the truth regarding the child, Jesus, who's brought to the temple. And so, friends, that means our job this morning is to listen to what they say. That's what you do with a reliable witness, right? You listen to them. That's our job this morning. We need to process this entire passage by really asking just one question. Who is this child, Jesus? And Simeon and Anna will give us the answer. Who is this child? In terms of His identity, who is He? And as we listen to them, friends, we'll find that God's Word delivered to us through Simeon and Anna, recorded by Luke, God's Word gives us five answers to that question, who is this child? That's right, five. Number one, Jesus is faithful to God's law. Number two, Jesus is comfort for God's people. Number three, Jesus is light for the nations. Number four, Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. And number five, Jesus is the Redeemer of those who wait for Him. So, five truths that answer the question, who is this child? Five truths about Jesus' identity. Let's begin then in verses 22-24 to with the first truth. Jesus is faithful to God's law. Jesus is faithful to God's law. 
Verse 22 gives us the setting for the entire scene, and the setting is significant. Notice what Luke writes, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. So the setting, friends, is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. Remember, the temple is the center of Israel's religious life. This is where God's presence is said to dwell. This is where the sacrifices for sin were offered. The entirety of Israel's religious life is focused at this point on the temple of the Lord. And it's to the temple that Mary and Joseph bring their son. So note just briefly the convergence between the temple and the one who would replace the temple in Himself, the Lord Jesus. They're coming together here. The setting is the temple. We should also note the reason that Jesus is brought to the temple. His parents bring Him in order to observe the law of Moses. Leviticus chapter 12 gave very clear instructions regarding what a mother was to do following childbirth. And that's what Mary comes to do here, to, to obey God's Word. She comes to offer that sacrifice for purification in verse 24. And Exodus chapter 13 gave detailed instructions for what to do with your firstborn child in Israel. Every firstborn in Israel belonged to God, whether man or beast. Every firstborn was the Lord's. And so when you had a firstborn son, you would bring him to the temple and redeem him by giving an offering. That's what Mary and Joseph come to do. They come to redeem Jesus, their firstborn. He's brought to the temple in order to observe the law of Moses. But did you catch how thoroughly Luke makes this point, friends. He doesn't make it in passing. He makes it over and over again. Three times in three verses, Luke mentions the law. Notice again, verse 22, the law of Moses. Verse 23, the law of the Lord. Verse 24, the law of the Lord. Verse after verse, you see, Luke is presented, uh, Jesus is presented as faithful to the law. But then notice the very end of the passage, verse 39. Again, Luke makes the same point at the end, beginning and end. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Friends, sometimes in studying the Bible, simple repetition is enough to make the point. And that's true here. Clearly, Luke wants you and me to see that Jesus has been faithful to the law from his earliest days. Now, why does that matter? Why is Luke making this point so emphatically? And he is making it emphatically. Why is he making this point? Well, friends, it's because Jesus' faithfulness to the law is essential for the good news of the Gospel. Jesus' faithfulness is essential. We typically think of salvation primarily in terms of having our sins forgiven. And that's absolutely true. In order to be saved, we need a sacrifice that atones for our sin. We need some sort of payment for what we have done wrong. Forgiveness is essential, and praise God, the Lord Jesus paid that price with His own blood. But just as important, friends, for forgiveness, as forgiveness, salvation also requires that God's commandments be kept. Just as important for salvation is that God's law be fulfilled. And look, that's something you and I could never do. A thousand lifetimes, we would never keep God's commandments perfectly. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus did live in perfect obedience from His earliest days through the faithful care of His parents. He's submitting Himself to the law of the Lord. And it's because of that fulfillment, friends, that believers are now counted as sons and daughters of God. You see, Jesus' obedience is essential for our acceptance before God. Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives one of the clearest 
summaries of the Gospel in all of the New Testament. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His own Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you hear that? Adoption as sons and daughters of God. There's no better gift of the Gospel, arguably, than to be called God's own children. And why does it happen? Because God's own Son was born under the law in order to fulfill the law and redeem us who were condemned by the law. You see, it's essential for the Gospel. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is faithful to the law from the very beginning, He's able to save people like us. And so it's only a hint here in these verses. It's like a little seed that's going to sprout and bear more fruit over time. It's only a hint, but even in the seed form, this is the truth of who Jesus is. He is the one who is faithful to to God's law. And in His faithfulness, unfaithful people like you and me are saved. That's number one. Jesus is faithful to the law. The second truth about Jesus' identity brings us to Simeon. Verses 25-30. to Jesus' comfort for God's people. Jesus' comfort for God's people. We've already seen that Simeon is a Spirit-led witness, but there are a few more features we should note about Simeon. You'll notice in verse 25 that Simeon is very pious. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Now Luke is not saying that Simeon is perfect or sinless. Rather, his point is the same as with Zechariah in chapter 1. Simeon is devoted to God. He's faithful to God's Word. Simeon's very pious. You'll also notice that Simeon is very patient. Notice the end of verse 25 where Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now what does that mean? The consolation of Israel. Well, as we've come to learn in Luke... The answer is found in the Old Testament. Particularly the prophet Isaiah. If you can't figure out something in Luke's Gospel, the answer is probably in Isaiah. If you have read Isaiah lately, then you'll know that the prophet often warned God's people that exile was coming. Because God's people had broken the covenant, they were going to be kicked out of the land. They were going to be exiled away from the presence of God. That was Isaiah's warning. But in the midst of that warning, Isaiah also spoke spoke words of consolation that would sustain the people of God. Isaiah chapter 40 is a good example. God says in Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort My people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her iniquity is pardoned. You see, even as God's people faced judgment, they did so with the hope that comfort was coming, that God Himself would save His people. And that friends, is what Simeon is waiting on. He's waiting for God to do what he said. He's waiting for comfort, for consolation from the Lord. So the consolation of Israel is nothing less than the salvation of God's people. Simeon then is patient. He's waiting for salvation. In the midst of the waiting, you should also note that Simeon has a promise. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So notice again the convergence, the consolation of Israel and the Lord's Christ. They're coming together because they're the same thing. We don't know how long Simeon has been waiting, but his his waiting is hopeful. He has this promise. Simeon will see the Christ before he dies. So you put it all together. 
What do we learn about Simeon? He is pious and he's patiently waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. Then notice what happens in verse 28. Jesus comes to the temple. Simeon sees him. And God keeps His word. Verse 28, Simeon took the child up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Friends, I hope you see in this moment the faithfulness of God. God has done for Simeon just as He promised. God has kept His word. And yet, this moment of faithfulness to Simeon is at the same time much bigger than Simeon, isn't it? Isn't it? Notice that in keeping His promise to Simeon, God is also keeping His promise to all of His people. Here's what I mean. Look in verse 30 where Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Now, what exactly does Simeon see? He sees Jesus, does he not? He sees the little child held there in Mary's arms. Simeon sees salvation because he sees the Christ. In fulfilling his promise to Simeon, God is fulfilling his promise to all of his people. You see, this is the ultimate display of the faithfulness of God. That's why I say it's bigger than Simeon. In keeping his promise to Simeon, God keeps his promise to his people. Simeon sees the consolation of Israel. Remember, he's waiting for this comfort. He's waiting, he's praying, he's asking God, and now he sees the child. And he says, I can die in peace. Simeon sees the consolation of Israel because he sees Jesus. And as you read this, you should be struck with the fact that again, God has been faithful to His Word. God has done what He promised. And so we're hearing the same truth again, aren't we? I think this is four weeks in a row. The truth that God always keeps His Word. Week after week, Week after week, the Lord is saying this to us, brothers and sisters. And I, I, I'm beginning to wonder if it's because we're just so prone to forget it. I know I am. God always keeps His Word. And therefore, as God's people, we can always bank our lives on what God has said. In fact, friends, that's part of Simeon's testimony to us. Sure, we don't have a personalized promise like Simeon did, but we do have every promise given to us in the Word of God. And since God never changes, His faithfulness to Simeon is the assurance of His faithfulness to us. Listen, friends, this is how the saints of old give us their encouragement. This is how their lives strengthen our faith. The saints of old are your heritage and they're telling you that God is faithful. If God was faithful to Simeon and Mary and Zechariah and Abraham and David and Hannah and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, then God will surely be faithful to you because He doesn't change. The promise He kept to Simeon is a testament to the rock-solid reality that He will keep His Word to you and to me until the day that the Lord Jesus returns. And therefore, you've got to get the therefore, therefore we can trust Him. You can bank your life on what He says in His Word and He will never fail you. He will never fail you. And if we doubt that faithfulness, brothers and sisters, and sometimes I do, maybe you do too, if we struggle to believe that God will never fail us, 
then we should do what Simeon does here in this verse. We should fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. If we doubt God's faithfulness, then let's remind ourselves that God has already given us the greatest assurance of His commitment to us. He's already given us that assurance already in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He cannot give you anything more than the Lord Jesus. So if you struggle to believe that God is faithful, do what Simeon did. Look in faith on the child, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the heart of Simeon's testimony. In seeing Jesus, there's this unshakable comfort. And the comfort is that God is faithful. That God is faithful. That's truth number two. Jesus is comfort for God's people. The third truth also comes from Simeon. This time in verses 31-32, to Jesus is light for the nations. Jesus is light for the nations. After mentioning salvation in verse 30, you'll notice that Simeon goes on to describe what this salvation means for the world. Notice verses 31 and 32. Uh, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared, verse 31, in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Friends, we should note that word prepared in verse 31. The idea here is of God's sovereign work to accomplish salvation. This is God's work that He's been doing down through the ages, down through the history of Israel and now through the church. He's been preparing His promised salvation to come into the world and now Simeon says that salvation has arrived in Jesus. But you'll notice in verse 32 that Simeon mentions Gentiles along with the nation of Israel. The light of Christ comes into the world and He brings glory to Israel and revelation to the Gentiles. Now, what is Simeon getting at here? His point about Israel is pretty clear. It's through Israel that the Messiah comes. It was Israel who received God's law. It was Israel who received the covenant. It was Israel who received the promises. And now through Israel, the Christ comes into the world. God's salvation is to the Jew first, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And that's Israel's glory. The Messiah is descended from Israel. So the light of Christ illuminates how the roots of God's salvation begin in the nation of Israel. But what about revelation to the Gentiles? What does that mean? Well, again, you have to look to the Old Testament for insight. And when we do, we find that the Old Testament actually has a consistent expectation that God's salvation would expand beyond Israel and spread out to all the nations of the earth. From the beginning, God expected all peoples or some from all peoples to come into His kingdom. It started, in fact, with Abraham, the father of Israel. Remember that? Genesis chapter 12, God said He would bless Abraham and through Abraham He would bless all the families of the earth. So even with Abraham, there was this global emphasis But it went beyond Abraham as well. The Old Testament prophets specifically anticipated that Gentiles would come to know the salvation of God. Listen, for example, to what God said in, guess the book, Isaiah. You can literally guess it. If I say guess it, you can guess it. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 49. 
God is speaking here of the servant of the Lord, the one who would redeem God's people. This is what God says, Isaiah 49. It's too light a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, for the Gentiles, that My salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah, friends. That's Old Testament. And that's precisely what Simeon foresees here in Luke 2. It's through Jesus that God will bring light to the Gentiles' darkness. That's the revelation that verse 32 is talking about. Through Jesus, God will reveal Himself even to the Gentiles. You see, friends, this is an essential piece of the glory of Christ. He is the Savior of all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. Now, you may be asking, okay, I see the Old Testament connection, but why does this matter for Christians today? What, I mean, like, what's, what's the point here for, for us? Verse 32, what's the point for us? That's a good question. And the answers are incredibly important. There's a bunch of answers as to why it's important. I'm just going to give you two. For one thing, this point matters because it explains why the church is central in the plan of God. It explains why the church, you and me, it explains why the church is central in the plan of God. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why can we, a group of people that are probably exclusively Gentiles, why can we claim to be the people of God? Why can people like us claim a stake in the steadfast covenant love of God? Why? Only because Jesus is the Savior of both Jew and Gentile. Only because the Gospel is good news of salvation to the very ends of the earth. You see, this is not an obscure theological point, brothers and sisters. For the church today, this actually explains who we are. This explains why we can be the people of God. This is essential for our hope and our salvation. So we should rejoice that Jesus is a light for the nations because it's the reason why we're saved. It's the reason that we can claim to be the people of God. Even Gentiles have come to know the one true and living God. So it matters because it explains who we are. The second reason this matters, friends, is because it reminds us of the church's mission. It reminds us of the church's mission. Remember, Simeon is speaking here in the Holy Spirit. It's a prophecy. He's looking ahead. He's anticipating the mission of the church. The logic is easy to follow. If Jesus is light for the nations, and if we, the church, the body of Christ, have been entrusted with the Gospel, then surely our calling is to take that Gospel to the very ends of the earth. How will the nations hear unless someone preaches to them? How will the darkness be pierced unless someone brings the light of Christ? You see, this is our mission, brothers and sisters. The mission of the church anticipated here in verse 32. We're called to make disciples both locally and globally. To be sure, not everyone goes to the ends of the earth, but some of us must go. Are we at least willing to consider ourselves as the ones who are called to go? Are we at least willing to say, if Jesus is the light for the nations, and if we, the church, have been entrusted with the Gospel, then I'm at least willing to be one of the ones that goes to the ends 
of the nation? Are we at least willing to obey? What's more, are we looking for the open doors right here today in our own neighborhoods to bring the light of Christ into the darkness? I was talking with a church member yesterday, and she was mentioning to me that when you interact with non-believers in the world, generally there is a sense of desperation of looking for something that will help. Looking for some kind of truth that explains the chaos that is this world. Do we have eyes to see those open doors? Do we have hearts that are ready to engage with the truth, with the light? Are we at least willing, friends, if Jesus is the light for the nations, and if we the church are the body of Christ and we have been entrusted with the Gospel, then who would go but us? Who would be willing to speak but us? We should at least be willing and ready to obey whenever and wherever God opens the door for the Gospel. If it's revelation for the Gentiles, and that means to the very ends of the earth, then somebody who's a member of a church somewhere is going to have to say, yes, Lord, I'll go. Maybe it'll be you. Maybe it'll be me. That's number three. Jesus is light for the nations. The fourth truth gives us the last words from Simeon. This time, verses 33-35. to Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. Things take a sober turn at this point. Jesus' parents marvel at Simeon's song, verse 33, but then verse 34 the tone changes. Notice what Simeon says, verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So here, we are reminded that not everyone receives and believes the Gospel of Christ. Some people will reject Christ, which is what Simeon means when he says that some will rise and some will fall. Christ is the cornerstone, as it says in Psalm 118. And while some people will stand on that stone and be saved, others will stumble over Christ and fall in judgment. There will be some who reject the Lord Jesus utterly and completely. But along with that rejection, Simeon also anticipates opposition as well. To put it very simply, friends, humanity's natural response is to resist and oppose God. That's what he means here. In the end of verse 34, a sign that is opposed. That's active opposition. Remember, brothers and sisters, this world is opposed to God and to His Christ. This world actually hates the Gospel in its natural state. That's why the Apostle John speaks of that unholy trinity in 1 John. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That unholy trinity is opposed to God. And our natural inclination, apart from grace, is just to go along with the opposition. And that's what Simeon is getting at here in verse 34. Some will rise, some will fall, and some, perhaps we could even say many, will oppose the Lord Jesus. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when we encounter opposition. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when the culture seems to deny God and run the other way from truth. That should not surprise us. 
God has told us such things will come. And He has told us in order that we would be ready and prepared in order to be faithful. And so I've said it before, and I'll say it again, because I think it's a message that the church is missing in 2019. We vastly underestimate the importance of simply but clearly holding fast to the truth. Holding fast to the truth and not moving. Every church wants to be at the forefront of the Gospel advancing. Amen? I want our church to be there. Just at the forefront of knocking down the forces of darkness and seeing people come to faith in Christ and and just seeing advance and growth and fruit. Every church wants to see that. I want to see that in our church. And I pray that God gives it to us. But at the same time, in a culture of opposition, which by the way has been the culture since the very beginning, in a culture of opposition, let's remember that the calling to stand firm and to hold fast and to be clear on what the Gospel is, that, friends, is really important Gospel work. To put the stake in the ground and say, this is what is true. And to say it with grace and love for the world to see and to hear. God may not give us Gospel advance, but we should pray desperately that He gives us Gospel faithfulness. We shouldn't be surprised when we encounter opposition. Still, the sober tone continues into verse 35. After predicting Mary's heartache, which we're going to see as the Gospel continues, Simeon speaks of how Christ will expose each and every human heart. Notice the end of verse 35. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In short, friends, the Gospel of Christ is the dividing line of humanity. That's Simeon's point. How a person responds to the Gospel reveals their allegiance and even their eternal destiny. Notice back in verse 34 that there was no middle ground. You either rise with Christ in salvation or you fall under His judgment. Rise or fall. On the last day, there's no neutral. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality before the Lord. Through His Gospel, Christ exposes the human heart in order to reveal where every person stands before the living God. The Gospel is the dividing line of humanity. And so, I want to pause here just for a moment and speak to those who are not trusting in Christ today. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, perhaps you are here and you recognize yourself in Simeon's words about those who reject Christ. Perhaps God is allowing you, even now, to see the state of your own heart that you don't know Christ as Savior, that your sin is still held against you before the Holy God. Friends, if that's you today, if God is giving you that moment of grace to see clearly, I pray that you would listen to the good news of God's Word and believe that Jesus alone can save you. Yes, it's true that some people will reject Christ and face His judgment on the last day, but friends, the last day is not here yet. Today is the day to hear the Gospel and turn from sin and to trust in Christ. So won't you believe today, if you don't know the Lord, won't you believe, won't you lay down your opposition and your rejection and turn to Christ in faith, trusting that He will save all who call upon His name? Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. There's really only two types of people. Those who know Christ and those who don't. Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. But by God's grace, 
We can stand on Christ and rise with Him on the last day to be saved. And so God's Word is calling you. If you don't know Him today, God's Word is calling you even now to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's number four. Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. That brings us to the final point about Jesus' identity. This time, verses 36 to 38. Jesus is the Redeemer of those who wait for Him. Jesus is the Redeemer of those who wait for Him. Luke shifts from Simeon to Anna, who as we said at the outset, is a reliable, Spirit-led witness to Christ. What we should note about Anna is that she is dependent upon and devoted to God. This stands out very clearly from Luke's description of her. Anna has been a widow for most of her life. Verse 37 tells us, and instead of remarrying, she has depended on God in faith. What's more, Anna has devoted herself to the worship of God. Again, verse 37 tells us she spends her days fasting and praying in the temple. Dependence and devotion. Anna, then, is a picture of those who wait upon the Lord. She's a picture of those who wait upon the Lord. Her hope is in God's Word. And her entire life is marked by this faithful confidence that magnifies God's trustworthy character. I can't imagine doing anything for 84 years, let alone depending upon God actively to sustain me. She's a picture of someone who waits upon God. In other words, friends, Anna displays humble, patient, genuine faith. And notice where that faith leads. Listen again to verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him, that is, of Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna joins with Simeon in recognizing and praising the Christ. The redemption of Jerusalem is the same thing as the consolation of Israel. It's not two different ideas. It's just one idea. It's salvation. And both find their fulfillment in Christ. But I want you to think for a for just a minute about this moment for Anna. Try to, put herself, try to put yourself in her shoes. Whenever you read narratives, you're meant to try to identify with the people in the narrative. right? So just think for a minute about this particular moment for Anna. For decades, for decades, she has waited with no answer. No, for decades, she's waited and now in God's grace, He has allowed her to receive, to see the Redeemer of God's people. And not only does she see the Redeemer, but Anna also has the privilege of joining with the shepherds and being one of the early witnesses to who Jesus is. What a picture, friends. What a picture of the faithfulness of God to His people. Decades may go by. Decades may go by and the waiting may appear to be pointless. And yet in the end, God is faithful to His Word. God is faithful to keep His promises. That's the encouragement here, brothers and sisters. And I think it's where we should close. Anna's life is an encouragement to perseverance. It's an encouragement to keep walking and waiting by faith even when the road is long. Those who wait upon the Lord, like Anna, are never put to shame. Because God never fails to do as He promised. Those who wait upon the Lord are never put to shame because God never fails to do what He promised. And so, 
Let's be encouraged, brothers and sisters, to continue walking and waiting by faith. Let's follow in the footsteps of Anna and Simeon, trusting that God will do precisely as He promised. And as we wait, and we may wait for time still to come, and as we wait, let's devote ourselves to the great work of the people of God, the work of testifying to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us in the Scriptures. We pray, God, that You would help us to wait upon the Lord, find our strength renewed, and to remember that those those who wait upon Him are never put to shame. Thank You, Father, for being a faithful God. We pray that You would renew our confidence in You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.